on air, online, on digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Coming up today, Tasmanian beekeepers breeding their own queens. End of the day, the bees know what they're doing and I don't. It's, it's, it's a challenge, it's valuable to have and, and my aim is to perhaps produce queens uh, to sell them on to others. And My success rate currently with grafting, this is my third go, my fourth go, that I want to actually get above zero percent. So. And not the best weather for the new honey season. It's sort of good for plants, so it's good if you're on the east coast, but unfortunately you know, for us the west coast is the, the one that carries leatherwood and it's supposed to be rain for us. Well, right now, if you dropped a match down there now, you know, you'd lose, you'd just be a massive bushfire situation. Yeah, the weather is affecting most farming pursuits, including bees, and the story of why local beekeepers are having to breed queens coming up in just a moment. G'day, Tony, with you on this Thursday, where it's a day that sees the release of a draft national plan to control deer numbers. Tasmania has led the way with lots of studies and plans on the local deer population, but this now extends nationally, so we'll talk about that. As well, we'll check the latest on the weather and also take your thoughts on any issues you might have something to say about the deer issue. 0438922936 is that number. 0438922936. We'll start the day with bees. Tasmania's expanding cohort of recreational beekeepers have been busy honing their craft over the past few months. The ban on importing queen bees from interstate because of rower mite has meant some have needed to breed their own this season. Larissa Smith pulled on her beekeeping suit to learn more about the process. It's the time of the year where beehives are getting prepared for honey collection over summer. I'm looking down into the cell to see if there's eggs there because you need eggs for nurse bees to be around. To produce a strong and healthy hive it needs a new queen bee. See how they're roaring? They know they're queenless. Last year just over seven and a half thousand queen bees were imported into Tasmania. That can't happen this season with restrictions now in place to prevent varroa mite crossing Bass Strait. So beekeepers here need to raise their own queens. That sound there, what's that sound there guys? Queenless. Queenless. Yep, thanks Scott. Typical sound. David Gibson is a semi-commercial beekeeper based at Westbury and he's teaching a couple of people relatively new to the industry some of the basic techniques. So, so it's a day, day's work to graft your queens, then you've got to get them and make sure that they've set the queen in, in your grafting bar make sure they're all working all right, you've got to set your hives up, you've got to feed them. Then day, day 12, normally I, I put them out into the nukes, into the breeding nukes like we have saw there with the cells, um, anywhere between day 9 and day 12, and then you've got another 14 odd days. So it's a, sort of a monthish process before you get a laying queen. Weather's an important factor for, um, for creating um, good queens. You need an average of about 18 degrees and seven or eight degrees of a night time. The mating flight is the most important part, so you've got to have good weather for that. You've got to have good good drone flying around, which is the boy bee that does all the mating, and um, the, the queen will come back and she'll do what she naturally does, but it's, um, it's a really big hit and miss. And it, it is. It's exciting when you get a queen back and you go and check her to make sure that she's hatched and all that kind of thing, and she's come back and she's laid within four or five days, and you think, cool, yeah, it's a good experience. 
Burned Meyer has taken up beekeeping as a retirement hobby after teaching for the last 40 years. He manages six hives on the outskirts of Launceston. As a new beekeeper, I'm, I'm very anxious, like an anxious new parent sort of thing. So you worry to him more than you should. Um, end of the day, the bees know what they're doing and I don't. It's, it's, it's a challenge, it's valuable to have and, and my aim is to perhaps produce queens uh, to sell them on to others. And there's lots of people who want to get into beekeeping, which is something to be truly encouraged, I think. Bernd wants to improve his strike rate at grafting baby queens. My success rate currently with grafting, this is my third go, my fourth go, I don't want to actually get above zero percent, so see how I go. Anne-Marie Lachanta works on a dairy farm in Deloraine and also enjoys beekeeping as a hobby. And she's not the only one. In fact, over the past six months, Biosecurity Tasmania has received more than 80 new applications for registered beekeepers. My husband and I started, we started off with a flow hive. Yeah, just for something that we can do um, together. And the kids have picked up um, an interest in it as well. So it's a, our little family thing. It's just a little hobby, I guess, for us all. We pass on all the knowledge to our kids. They get in, um, our 12 year old boy, he's right into it and he'll be grafting. He'll probably have a better eye at grafting than I. <laughs> As long as their interest grows, I find it exciting for them if their interest grows and they come and they try this and each year they try and do more and more and more and yeah, and, and it will, yeah, once the bug bites or the bee sting so to speak, it's very catching. So things I've learnt today is the sounds, different sounds that, that the hive makes, especially when it's queenless, the raw. Um, and the variety of colours of the, the bees. I didn't realise there was that many colours. <laughs> but overall it's been an enjoyable day. One beekeeper has said to me that your bee apprenticeship is 20 years and I've got a long way to go. <laughs> Yeah, that's recreational beekeeper Bernd Mayer handing that report from Larissa Smith. And if you want more on that story, you can go to our ABC Rural page. You can see that story online with a few good photos there too and a video coming up for you shortly. Well, a spokesperson from the Department of Natural Resources and Environment says the import restrictions on queen bees will continue beyond January as interstate varroa mite surveillance continues. Registration is also now compulsory for all Tasmanian commercial and recreational beekeepers. This requirement has been formalised in new biosecurity regulations, which came into effect on the 2nd of November. We're talking bees, they're needy when it comes to deciding when they go outside. And at the moment, Perth beekeeper Julian Wolfhagen says his bees are going hungry because of the weather. All that spring growth and wet weather have produced multitudes of pollen, but he says the wind chill factor keeping his bees from getting their food is affecting their honey production. Madeleine Rojan headed to Perth to chat with Julian, the owner of the Tasmanian Honey Company. It's sort of good for plants, so it's good off you're on the east coast, but unfortunately... You know, for us, the west coast is the the one that carries the leatherwood, and it's supposed to be rain for us. Well, right now, if you dropped a match down there now, you know you'd lose. You'd just be a massive bushfire situation. So while the weather's been coming easterly, the, the east getting majority of the rain, the west coast dry, um, and here we are, you know, with all but into summer, and it's not looking good. This is going to be a year where we're all flat out trying to keep our bees alive at the moment because there's flowers 
flowers, flowers everywhere because everything's doing well because the hive's out here on the eastern, was from central to eastern side. But they're starving to death looking at the flowers because they just can't get out. I mean, right now, I mean, I just pull my jumper off to come indoors. But the wind out there, even though it's lovely and sunny and uh, seems warm if you get out of the wind, but if you get in the wind, you know, wind chill factors, yeah, <laughs> down to single, single digits. So that the bees are barely flying and the plants aren't giving the nectar up that they would do if it were warmer. And has that made production tough on you? Well, I mean, only production's just about to start about now, really. I mean, we've had this since winter, we've had the spring build up, which is where we are you know, replacing the, the older queens and so forth, uh, and building the population up from the winter, uh, sort of low winter levels, up through spring, and that's worked very well. Um, there's been plenty of pollen around, but now the populations have got so much bigger in the hives and therefore the demand for honey for sustenance isn't there so we're having to um, feed them which is um, yeah being a bit of a drama particularly with the cost of feed feed sugar and then time and all the rest of it going on and so it's it's a it's going to be a hard year I suspect and I don't think it's going to really you know, the the climate people are not saying really it's going to break up till early next year, which let's say that's not going to be till you know, the autumn. So we'll end up having a beautiful autumn. You know, you can bet we'll have a sort of an Indian summer, I reckon, but by which stage it's too late for all of the target species that us, the beekeepers, will be chasing. So I think we're, we're going to struggle. With those um, weather problems in mind, is there anything that you can do to alleviate those stresses and and maintain some production not really well we might have to be a bit creative about where we move hives so it's about the only thing we can do well it's a significant thing and it's how beekeeping really um well the, the essence of our commercial uh, apiculture is that we we move to the season yeah we don't we're not stuck as like a farmer might be on one piece of land so we can mitigate by moving it around but it's going to be a bit of a I still think it's going to be a challenge to find uh, enough to uh, you know to get any sort of well, I'm starting to worry more now about the hives generating enough honey to be able to see themselves through into next year I'm sort of even considering how much of a production we'll have of surplus but there you know it might change but uh, we'll just have to hope and sort of lap of the gods really you said that you're pretty glad that tourists are coming back to Tassie. How much of your market is tourists? It's not. It's not a huge. I mean, we have probably of our sales, you know, under fifteen percent would be through here, uh, through our own shop front. But yeah, you know, that's still a significant percentage, and it keeps you know, two people in 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 jobs basically, and for. You know, for a period there, it was a struggle to keep those people. You know, there were sales were so, so slow. Which countries do you mostly um, have attraction from? Oh, um, Asia generally. I mean, used to be Chinese a lot, um, but they're sort of uh, they're they're not not travelling these days, but because uh, of lockdowns and what have you, political issues. So we have a lot of Singaporeans. Um, 
and uh, Japanese, Korean. And why, why do you think that they love it so much? It's probably more in touch with the, the, you know, the importance of good quality food and, and honey figures very highly for, for them or in their um, respect for health promoting foods and yeah no they've it's been uh, enormously uh, influential I mean probably in my working life really saw the beginning of that sort of export to Asia and really you know I could almost say to that to that market alone so we owe our existence perhaps our Koreans in particular have been particularly loyal and 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 uh, passionate about our Tasmanian honey so yeah, no, I'm uh, full of respect and admiration for for those uh, having have, having those markets. What, in your eyes, is the secret to making such a high quality product, and and also making such a high quality product that's marketable and loved by people around the globe? Well, hand being being hands on, handmade. Uh, it's small, small volumes. So, and we start with a, with a nature giving us such a, a quality product. All we have to do is not muck it up, you know, or compromise it somehow. Again, we are blessed with our in with our nature here, and it's just some something that was, uh, as you say, a given that's out there. All we have to do is is respected and, and care for it and communicate that story too, you know. So you just got to keep on reminding people that there's you know, some of the best things in life uh, just don't change. They're just there and you just got to support them and or look them out and keep the faith, really. <laughs> yes, there was Perth beekeeper Julian Wolfhagen with Madeleine Rajan talking about the poor hungry bees being affected by the cool conditions when they should be out feeding and pollinating at the moment. Didn't notice too many bees in the garden this morning. A little bit cool. We'll check in with the Bureau to find out about the latest on the weather. Around about 10 minutes from now. But I know the ones that are out there feeding are the deer population. And in a moment, we'll look at the National Feral Deer Control Plan, which has just been released today. The chopper. The sails. The sea spray underway. The spinnakers unfurl. The stage is set for exceptional ocean racing from Boxing Day. Hear updates from ABC News in the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race at sea, on deck and over the finish line. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. A four three eight nine double two nine three six is that text line number. We've talked a lot about feral deers on this program for the last few years. Now a draft plan to control feral deer nationally has just been released for comment. It sets up a nationally coordinated approach to ultimately slow and reduce the growth of feral deer populations across the country. It's estimated there are now one to two million feral deer in Australia, a rapid increase from an estimated 200,000 back in the year 2000. The plan is to stop the spread of large feral deer populations, control or eradicate small isolated populations before they spread and protect significant sites and species from feral deer incursion. Andrew Cox from the Invasive Species Council says it's about time we did something about deer. 
yeah, look, deer are spreading across Australia, across the whole continent uh, and Tasmania. And uh, I think it's about time we've had a, a national deer action plan. Um, it, it brings together the best thinking and it actually sets an ambitious goal of a national containment zone. going to be the only way we're going to stop deer covering the whole continent. A containment zone? Whereabouts? Like a physical containment zone? Well, every deer are in every state and territory, um, and but they're mostly in um, the east coast of Queensland, New South Wales, Victoria. So the National Containment Zone really sort of draws a line roughly through the centre of New South Wales all the way through to Rockhampton, back down to Melbourne. And it seeks to mop up the small populations around that zone and stop its western spread. There are some deer in, in you know, little small populations in West Australia, but most of Australia is largely deer-free. But as we know, where there are deer in most of Victoria and probably about a quarter of New South Wales, they're just causing massive havoc. The scientists that have sort of studied the, the six species of deer that are in Australia have confirmed that they are set to cover every habitat type in every part of Australia unless we can stop this this spread of deer. And what does it mean if they do that? Will they will uh, you know a, a species uh, likely to be uh, destroyed as a result? Are we are we likely to see an impact on other other animals? Maybe some endangered animals too. Deer are a pretty pretty ma- massive consumers of vegetation. Uh, they open up the understory. They ring bark trees. They wallow in wetlands. Uh, so they're taking away the feed from native animals. They're damaging native plants they're just pushing out other native species whether we're talking about wombats and kangaroos but some of the, the, the smaller animals too it's just their birds are more liable for predation from other feral animals like cats and foxes they just wreak havoc and um, our continent has a, and its animals have evolved without deer we don't have any hard-toothed animals natively and so to have deer right across the country would just be devastating. And it's an, not an eradication plan, it's a control plan. So I guess it's what still allows some deer farming? Uh, look, if there's going to be deer farming, we, we've learned the hard way, I think, that deer farms are leaky. Um, we've had, and also when the market drops, uh, which happened in the 90s, that's when people started releasing deer. Then I think we need to make sure deer farmers are more, far more responsible and that they tighten up the rules around fencing because deer can actually jump over a six-foot fence quite easily. We haven't got a, all the tools to really um, remove them entirely from the country yet, That's, but it's going to be a major challenge just to stop their spread. So let's give it a go. Let's see how we go in a, a few years' time, and um, that'll be a major achievement if, if deer can be held back within this containment zone. You know, how much money has been allocated to this? And is it enough? No allocated. It's been allocated to the draft plan at this stage. We're hoping that will follow once the plan is adopted by states and territories and the federal government. Do you think that's likely? Have you had any, you know, positive noises yet? Well, uh, last year, the government, sorry, earlier this year, the government did allocate some funding for deer control in the World Heritage Area in Tasmania because it's threatening the walls of Jerusalem and to some other states. So... I feel confident that because now the problem is recognised, we know it costs agriculture, motorists, millions of dollars each year just in accidents and damage. So, you know, it's a pretty clear case that I think a a significant investment in control and to stop them spreading is going to yield massive economic returns. 
What about people that say, oh, what about Bambi? What about Bambi? Um, they might look cute, but when you get hundreds or even thousands impacting on your farm, taking away your livelihood, we've, we've know we've already had at least one death from deer collisions. Um, this is a serious matter. Deer don't belong in Australia, so Bambi belongs in Northern Hemisphere where they they come from. Uh, we need our native animals to be the things we see at night. So cuddly koalas and wombats. Yes. Andrew Cox from the Invasive Species Council talking there to Michael Condon. Ted Rowley is a beef producer in the Snowy Mountains of New South Wales. He says in the last decade he's seen an explosion in deer numbers, reducing his carrying capacity and threatening his animals with pests and diseases. He chairs the national working group that will help develop the deer control plan. We bought this property about 10 years ago uh, in, in Moonbar in the Snowy Mountains and we saw a few deer. But the nature of invasive pest animals is such that uh, over a period of about 10 years, you can go from 30 to 500 um, poor deer in particular quite quickly. So when we bought the property, there were deer here and they were at the beginning of their exponential population explosion. And five years after we bought it, we formed a deer group with the neighbours. We were shooting four to 5,000 deer a year across the landscape with the help of a commercial harvester. And still not really making a dent? You have to shoot, you have to cull about 45% of the population of deer every year to hold ground. Deer reproduce at 35 to 50% depending on conditions. And of course the last two years have been bonzi years for deer. And what does it do to your carrying capacity, you know, the, the feed on ground? It, it had several effects. When the neighbours and and I started talking about deer, we worked out that deer were costing us about half our stocking rate, and it's it's quite subtle. Um, so there are direct agricultural production losses, but of course deer carry about 15 diseases endemic to sheep and cattle, so deer can share a whole raft of diseases, Yoni's disease, foot and mouth, uh, internal parasites such as liver fluke are carried by deer, which makes life difficult in terms of maintaining biosecurity. And so you got involved in the National Action Plan. Do you think that by being able to 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 stop this, to stem the flow into other areas that uh, you know to hold them within a certain area, do you think that plan will work? Yes, I do. I I think one has to remember that deer impacts urban and peri-urban areas as well as agricultural areas. Our area has a lot of land managers who don't farm commercially. So we needed a coordinated response across states and territories in Australia to work out how to handle these things. The National Feral Deer Action Plan was an attempt to put some standards and some coordination across states and territories and to support states and territories with a a concerted action. Remember that I see deer, feral deer, as, as a rabbit plague. Each deer represents something like 50 to 100 rabbits. Because they're really clever, they're much more difficult than most vertebrate pest animals to manage. On, on top of that, we need to remember that the environmental and community impacts from feral deer are, are very large. Uh, years ago, I remember asking the panel beater in, in Genderbine how his uh, deer collisions were going, his crash repair business, 
he said he'd just started working on more deer collisions than kangaroo collisions. And that that rang alarm bells with me because that meant that it wasn't only farmers and rural land managers who were paying the cost of having deer. So how will you keep them in, in a certain area with, with, with culling, you know, with uh, commercial shooting, with fencing? How's that going to work? Well, I think you try all of those things. The National Action Plan for Feral Deer identifies a range of control measures. As you said, fencing fencing is very expensive, and I live in the mountains, not on the plains. Uh, ground shooting, aerial shooting, uh, use of quite sophisticated technologies for culling with firearms, um, thermal imaging scanners, thermal imaging telescopic sites on your rifle. The action plan identifies that we need to move to helicopter culling with thermal imagery in order to knock down an existing population. And then we're going to have to maintain that knockdown level through the use of ongoing baiting, ongoing commercial harvesting. The first thing that people usually say to me is, well, why don't you shoot them and eat them? And I say, well, I can't eat 30 a week. The other thing that people say to me is, well, get some recreational hunters in. I like hunting. I've been a recreational hunter since I was 14. The issue is that recreational hunting is fun on Saturday afternoon. I always say it's a bit like playing tennis. Playing tennis and recreational hunting has about the same impact on the population of feral deer. That's Ted Rowley, beef producer in the Snowy Mountains of New South Wales. He also chairs the National Working Group that helped develop the National Deaf Feral Deer Plan. And he was talking to Michael Condon there about the problems with the deer population where he lives. An all too familiar story that many Tasmanian farmers can relate to. Now, if you want to peruse a copy of the National Deer Plan, go to the website feraldeerplan.org and you can download a copy of the plan and comment if you wish. You might have a comment for us as well. Uh, Jeremy says, any chance of harvesting wild deer to be butchered and put into the market for some cheap venison in our restaurants. Don't think that'll happen, Jeremy. 0438922936, that text line number. Still to come on the Country Hour, we'll look at the uh, latest in the dairy trends for the milk and also delays in potato crops still happening at the moment. We'll check the weather as well. First up, the news headlines with Liz Gwynn. Good afternoon, Tony. Federal Parliament is debating the government's energy market intervention, which is set to pass by the end of today. Labor has secured the support of the Greens and crossbenchers David Pocock and the Jackie Lambie Network to legislate a 12-month cap on gas prices and a $1.5 billion relief package for households and businesses. Treasurer Jim Chalmers says that relief package will be matched by the states and territories to help curb skyrocketing power prices. There are warnings Australia may not be able to fully embrace advancements in technology because of a scientist shortage. This week's Australian Institute of Physics Congress has heard Australia is lagging behind many OECD nations in the signs of its workforce and many employers are being forced to retrain staff or look overseas. And in basketball, the Wildcats game in Perth tomorrow night has been postponed after players from the New Zealand Breakers tested positive to COVID-19. In a statement, the NBL says coronavirus isolation rules are still in place in New Zealand and the breakers are unable to field a team. More news at one. Time now to check the latest on the weather. Brooke Oakley joins us from the Bureau. Hello, Brooke. Good afternoon, Tony. Uh, Rainfall figures, what have we got? 
Well, in the 24 hours to 9am this morning, the highest rainfall totals were about the northeast of the state with friendly beaches recording 21 millimetres, followed by 19 millimetres at Bishano and 16 millimetres at Grey. Most of the state did see some rainfall, although the northwest did remain dry. Since 9am this morning, the most of the rainfall has been about the south and east of the state and topped by four millimetres at Mount Barrow and three millimetres at Kunanyi, Mount Wellington. OK, and the outlook, is that rain going to linger? It is going to linger for a couple more days because we do have a south to south easterly airstream persisting over Tasmania. Tasmania is sandwiched in between a low in the Tasman Sea and a high to the west of us. So for the remainder of today, the showers will continue about the east, south and central areas and remain fine elsewhere. And the south to south easterly winds are still fresh and gusty about the northeast coast. Tomorrow, showers about the east, south and central areas once again and fine elsewhere. And then on Saturday, those showers do start to ease during the afternoon. And Sunday onwards is when we start to see a change to more settled conditions as a high-pressure system moves to the southwest of Tasmania. So on Sunday, it'll be fine apart from light morning showers about the south and the east and the chance of showers about the northwest. And then on Monday, fine apart from the chance of fog in the early morning. And people probably well know that the temperatures are much colder than average for this time of year, particularly about the south and the east. The temperatures will finally return to closer to average next week. Next week. Is that? Yeah, next week. <laughs> just, just before Christmas. Any, any news on what Christmas Day is going to be like? <laughs> It is too early to say exactly what Christmas Day will bring, but keep an eye out for the first official Christmas Day forecast that will be issued on the afternoon of the 18th of December. All we can really say at this stage is that the second half of December is likely to be a little bit wetter than average about the north, cooler than average for the northeast, and warmer than average for the west. Yeah, like Santa's presence, you're not giving much away there, eh? No, not yet. <laughs> uh, warnings, what have we got at the moment? For today, we've got a strong wind warning for northwestern coastal waters from Low Rocky Point to Stanley and for eastern coastal waters from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Tasman Island, including Banks Strait and Franklin Sound. For tomorrow, a strong wind warning for northwestern coastal waters from Low Rocky Point to Stanley and also for eastern coastal waters from the northern tip of Flinders Island to Wineglass Bay. There are still minor flood warnings current for the South Esk and Macquarie Rivers and the generalised flood warning for the Jordan River will be finalised today. OK. Now, the coastal waters in Swellbrook, what's happening? For today, we've got south to southwest, south to southeasterly winds at 15 to 25 knots, reaching up to 30 knots about the northwest and the east. The swells in the west and south are southwesterly of 2.5 to 3 metres, decaying to 1.5 to 2.5 metres in the evening and the Wave Rider buoy at Cape Sorrel is currently reading exactly three metres. In the north, a westerly around one metre offshore, and in the east, a south to southeasterly of two to three metres, and the Wave Rider buoy at Marae Island is currently reading 2.4 metres. 
Tomorrow we'll see south to southeasterly winds at 15 to 25 knots once again, reaching up to 30 knots about the northwest and the northeast. The swells in the west and south start out at southwesterly 1.5 to 2.5 metres, reaching up to 3 metres about the south in the evening. In the north, confused below 1 metre, and in the east, a south to southeasterly at 2 to 3 metres. And just before you go, Brooke, what was the date that that official Christmas weather forecast will be issued? That will be the afternoon of Sunday, the 18th of December. Oh, so Sunday. After around 4.30. Sunday be able afternoon. To look up. Okay. That's right. Probably talk to you on the Monday about it then. <laughs> <laughs> you can ask all the questions that you yeah. like on Monday. <laughs> Thanks, Brooke. Thanks, Tony. See you later. Brooke Oakley from the Bureau with the latest forecast for you there. On the Country Hour, 0438 922 that text line number. Jim from Beautiful Fourth says, uh, Tony, dear, some small legislative changes such as previously allowed buffalo to be field shot and exported from the top end. I see it as a good way to go, export trade and local trade. Uh, if you'd like to comment on that. And as we say, if you want to have a look at that uh, national deer plan, it does contain information about Tasmania, but um, Tasmania already has its own deer management plan. Um, and the bridge traffic, apparently uh, something's happened on the bridge. Traffic is awful. Might be just uh, lunchtime, people shopping, Christmas shopping. Anyway, if you find out, let us know and we'll tell people what's happened on the bridge. I'm assuming that's the bridge in the south. Uh, across the Derwent. Uh, also, I've got to tell you that this is the last day for the Giving Tree. If you want to um, contribute to the Giving Tree appeal, this is the final day. You can still do it online, ABC Giving Tree. If you go to our ABC Facebook page, our ABC Rural Facebook page, you will see the video of the uh, beekeepers, the local beekeepers, uh, doing the breeding of the queen. It's an interesting video, actually. It's a beauty from uh, Sarah Abbott and also from Larissa Smith. So make a beeline to our ABC Rural Facebook page. Coming up, we'll talk dairy. Know your emergency plan this summer. A third consecutive London. And rely on ABC to be with you. What can I do? Broadcasting up-to-the-minute critical information. We have issued an emergency warning. Online at ABC Emergency and on your local ABC radio. ABC Radio, reliable Stay safe, stay connected. I don't know what I'd do without the ABC. Download the ABC Listen app and stay connected with your local ABC radio station. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. For all you uh, potato growers out there, we'll find out what's going on in Victoria very shortly. They're apparently still trying to plant the spuds. They can't get onto the fields, but we'll find out in a few minutes' time what's happening. Well, consumers are starting to balk at the price of branded milk in the supermarket. According to Rabobank, shoppers are trading down to private label milk away from more expensive branded products. In fact, this year, the price of milk in the supermarket increased at the fastest rate since records began in the 80s. Michael Harvey, senior analyst with Robobank, has told Josh Becker it could be a tough year next year ahead for Australian consumers. The first thing to note is clearly we're seeing very high dairy pricing in, in grocery and in outer home channels in many parts of the world, and Australia included. And that comes down to the simple fact that, you know, there is high cost of production across dairy supply chain, starting at Farmgate with, you know, very high milk pricing for, for lots of producers around the world, feeding through 
to, you know, processing and getting product to market. So what we are seeing is a lot of dairy companies locally and globally needing to take action on pricing just to try and restore some margins in, in the supply chain given the, the cost headwinds. So the clear watch in all this is what is the consumer response to all that. The, the, the good news is, I mean, dairy consumption will have a generally high level of resilience in most economies, particularly in, in a developed economy like Australia. Uh, but there is no doubt already signs of consumer response, and, and that can take a number of different forms depending on the product you're looking at and, and the market and the economy. But there's a lot of trading down. So, you know, consumers look to bulk buys and, and, and value offerings, and they potentially look at private label over branded products. But the key watch is really around how significant is there in terms of any volume response? And and there are some signs where certain products, there is less consumption taking place. So we're keeping a very close eye on that because the reality is while we're, we're nearing the peak in terms of price inflation for consumer, the household squeeze on, on budget really won't peak until next year. So the, the consumer response still has a little a little bit of runway left. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that through 2023. So what's the significance of that shift in preferences from consumers at the dairy cabinet? Well, the context is important. I mean, if you go back to the most recent CPI numbers that came out for the September quarter, we had, you know, food inflation at two decade highs. And when you, you know, break that out, it was broad based. So it was across nearly every category. Uh, that consumers are buying food products. And of course, dairy was a core component of that. And if you looked at the just the liquid milk category within the ABS numbers, you know, it, it, it posted its highest uh, annual increase since they began tracking records way back in the 80s. So, you know, the dairy inflation story is very much part of the broader food inflation story. What's your view on milk production across uh, the dairy regions of Australia and what the outlook is going to be for Australia in the coming months? Well, the, the real challenge for Australia has been the weather and, the, you know, the, clearly the, the disruption we've seen, particularly through the spring peak this season because of the excessive rainfall in lots lots of production regions across the east coast, but more importantly, the, the flooding that we've seen impacting in, you know, New South Wales and, and, and Victoria as well. So national production's not tracking that well. It's down year on year through the key production season. And and it's not, you know, the, the challenge here is that, you know, milk prices are at record levels across most most production regions in Australia, you know, margins on farm are not too bad despite the cost headwinds, but it's not translating into production growth because of that weather weather disruption. Now, weather risk is going to linger for a little bit just given how much rainfall has been around and what the outlook looks like, but hopefully a more normal season will we'll start to see some stability in that milk production uh, next year. But when you zoom out here, I mean, this is where unique here in Australia and New Zealand that we are starting to see milk supply recover in most export regions around the world after a, a, a quite an extended period of sluggish production growth. So productions are recovering in the US, productions growing again in some key regions in Europe, it's recovering in South America. It's really only New Zealand and Australia, where we've had weather-related disruption, we haven't seen any growth this year, and that feeds into the broader picture here. When we're looking at the global market, we had, you know, we had record-high commodity pricing for dairy products earlier this year. We've seen, depending on the product, you know, falls between 20 and 30 percent since those peaks, and that's the subtle shift in the supply and demand fundamentals. There is a bit more milk around in export regions. China's buying a little bit less product from the global market as they sort of deal with inventory and 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 sluggish consumption through lockdown and that's why we've had that price correction in commodities uh, up until now 
it's some way off next year's milk price, but what do you think those indicators around the global outlook growth in milk production in some of those other big players will mean for the Farmgate milk price? Yeah, so so the good news is when you're looking at the global market, we, we still see a soft landing coming through because, we, you know, even though the supply is recovering, it, it's not overly strong. There's not a lot of inventory in those export regions, and, and that's going to go a long way to providing some stability. You know, there, there is clearly high cost of production in the system, so that's going to support uh, milk pricing as well. Um, and, of course, when you're looking at what does that mean locally, I mean, there's no doubt that and a lot there's a lot of water to go under the bridge first but you're going to have a week at global market setting when we roll around to milk price setting time next year but there are there's some good news in all that that we're going to have a, a dollar an Aussie dollar that's lower against the US dollar which is obviously supportive of export returns even though the commodity basket might be lower in US dollar terms but the other thing here is that you know, we are cycling this period where we're seeing significant price inf- increases across the dairy case domestically. So that will provide some insulation for farm gate pricing because we're going to be getting a better price and higher price from the domestic market. So you're looking at the balance around a weaker export commodity basket, but offset by a, a dollar, which is favourable, some better domestic market returns. But you've got to go through all that scenario. But we have got milk pricing at record levels. Uh, you know, we're seeing price indicators in other export regions starting to turn slowly and, and start to, to drift lower. So that might be something that we see here, but we're, we'll assess that situation closer to you know, new season pricing. That's Michael Harvey, Senior Analyst with Rabobank, handing that report from Josh Becker on the latest with the milk situation and uh, predictions for what uh, sort of year it's going to be next year with regard to uh, milk supply and milk prices. In a moment, we'll talk about uh, the problems potato growers have already had here, but they're still having in uh, Victoria. The chopper, the sails, the sea spray underway, the spinnakers unfurl, the stage is set for exceptional ocean racing from Boxing Day. Hear updates from ABC News in the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race at sea, on deck and over the finish line. On ABC Radio Hobart. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Uh, Chrissy tells us on the text line, it could be brush cutting and lane closures on the approach to the bridge on the eastern shore causing uh, traffic chaos. I thought it might have been a ship going under the bridge, but uh, that's apparently what's causing the problems. Thank you for that, Chrissy. 0438 922 936. Well, we know constant heavy wet weather is continuing to delay potato production in uh, in the local area, but in Ballarat region, Farmers are at least a month behind. Mount Prospect potato grower Chris Stevens says he only began planting on November 29, around the time he'd usually be finishing up getting the spuds in the ground. He says it's been far too wet to get tractors onto the paddocks and the delay paired with a global potato shortage could see prices for the staple vegetables skyrocket next year, although he questions if that price increase will be passed on to farmers. There would be roughly probably 50% thereabouts, maybe a bit more, in of potatoes being planted in the ground, which normally they'd be, um, we would start in the uh, late October, early November, and, and we'd be all finished by now. But due to the wet season, we've um, been delayed by a month for starting. 
and yeah, we had another 40 mil over the last three or four days, which is uh, going to stop growers for another week. It'll be very late, very late. It'll be Christmas time or after nearly by the time most of the crops in the ground. Have you ever seen a season like this? Uh, I can remember when we were kids that, yeah, we'd be planting late, but not to the extent where we wouldn't make a start before the start of December. The old fellas, I tell you, they've planted spuds sort of up close to Christmas time years and years ago. The 70s were really wet. But yeah, no, not, not myself. I haven't seen it this bad. And even talking to Dad a while ago, he said he's seen it this wet, but never this time of the year. What do you think this is going to do for the supply of potatoes next year? We all know that there's going to be a massive shortage of potatoes. Everywhere where potatoes are grown has been um, suffered uh, wet and horrible planting conditions. The crops aren't going to yield as well as they would on a normal year. There's not much we can do about that. But yeah, there's no no chance of imports coming in. Growers are, are really worried about the challenge of, that this year's brought ahead. And security of suppliers unknown at the minute. There's definitely going to be a shortage. Spuds could be worth anything uh, in about the middle of next year. As we know, we can only grow one crop a year of uh, processing potatoes in Australia through the regions that, that grow those crops and uh, they're going to be down on tonnes. Plus, there could even be a lot of growers cut back on acres because it's been so wet. Paddocks just haven't been able to get on. You mentioned there that you don't believe there's going to be imports. Why is that? Oh, there's just no supply anywhere around the world. There's there's a shortage everywhere. Put that together with the, the um, cost of shipping um, after COVID and the fact that everywhere around the world's going green and, and sort of looking at other ways that they can be more sustainable. Well, one of those ways, especially in the Netherlands, that we've just seen lately is, is who is a major exporter through the world is that they're buying up farmland and, and going to stop agriculture production. So if governments around the world continue doing that, then that's going to cut back the amount of acres for all food production. And potatoes is uh, probably one of the ones that's going to get hit the hardest because it's such a high input crop to grow. On that point, in addition to the weather being a barrier, have you been spending more on input costs like fertiliser at the moment because it's just washing away or how's that, how has that all worked? No, not just yet because we've been delayed in getting the crop on the uh, into the ground. Those costs have sort of remained. Obviously, they're, they're a lot higher than they have been in the past, but we haven't had to put any extra out yet. It'll be if we do get heavy summer rains that will leach the fertiliser out of the soil that, that we'll have to do that. But talking to a lot of the growers in the Ballarat district, um, everyone's spending a lot more money on fuel because the ground's so wet, it's not preparing as, as easily as what we would have hoped and having to cultivate the ground an extra one, two, three or four times depending on the, the paddocks because they've been so wet to try and dry them out and, and work the ground down to a nice fine tilth so that the crop can grow is a lot higher cost than what normally would be. Another issue around the Ballarat region has been uh, negotiations with McCain's, which I'm aware are uh, confidential. But overall, do you know how many people have actually signed contracts this year? Yeah, it's supposed to be confidential, but at the minute, there sort of could be anything up to around about 50% of the Ballarat district's tonnage that, that could be unsigned at this present time, which is around about that 50,000 tonnes, which, which is a lot of potatoes, makes a lot of chips. And is that just purely over price dispute? Yeah, growers are, growers are really concerned, not only that this year with the weather and that, that the crops aren't going to yield as well, and, and with the price being offered, 
people aren't willing to take the risk. And that's probably going to be a massive driving factor going forward to, to why there will be such a big shortfall in supply of chips or, or processing potatoes. And it's not just, just our area where we grow for French fry production, it's the crisps, crisp growers and all that as well. They just, all the big corporates aren't paying enough money to their farmers and they've been happy to pay them subpar prices for the last 10 or 15 years. Growers are all of a sudden they've decided, no, the cost's too high to risk it and we just won't do it. So we'll just cut back and some growers are even talking about they might even exit the industry in the next year or two because they just can't see a future if the big corporate players who we're all supplying keep dealing the way they are with the growers. They're just sick of it. And what about people that are growing potatoes for, say, supermarket or fresh consumption, not so much for processing? Is the pricing working out better for those farmers? I don't really know that much, but but it's the same sort of thing. Coles and Woolworths are um, contracting larger growers or larger suppliers to supply them with huge volumes of potatoes. And it's a catch-22. You see spuds in the supermarket worth $4 a kilo, and the actual farmers might only be getting 40 cents or 30 cents. It's hard to believe there's such a discrepancy, but that's the case. Try $4.90 a kilo at the moment, uh, supermarket I go to. Ballarat Potato Growers Association Chairman Chris Stevens speaking there with Jane McNaughton and McCain Foods have been contacted for comment, but uh, yet to get back to ABC Rural. It's been an interesting year for potato growers, hasn't it? What about garlic growers? The number of farmers growing garlic in Australia tumbled when imports first came into the country. But the chair of the Australian Garlic Industry Association, John Olaf, has told Jennifer Nichols there's a growing appetite for flavoured, fresh Aussie bulbs and his group's role is promoting it. The garlic industry in general itself, it's not a levy-paying horticultural sector. So to get growers together, the Australian Garlic Industry Association was formed many, many years ago. We have at the moment probably uh, about 110 members and uh, probably before there was a mass import of garlic from overseas, Chinese garlic in the 90s, I think they had around about 700. So the industry itself has had uh, some ups and downs over the years. And how hard would it be to guess how much tonnage would be produced in garlic a year? Uh, Incredibly hard. We do a lot of work with HIA, Horticulture Innovation. Australia uh, to try and work some of those figures out but really it is sort of um, a little bit guesswork. I just don't have the figures right right with me at this stage. What's the difference between Australian garlic and imported garlic? Well clearly one's been bought in from an overseas country. It's gone through a uh, long stage of transport. It comes into Australia then it's gassed with methyl bromide to try and eradicate viruses and such like that would be coming over in the garlic itself. It's probably or maybe sprayed with inhibitors to stop it, you know, extend the shelf life. So give it that extra bit of time that it would have in transport. Whereas Australian garlic, uh, generally speaking, it's uh, direct to market. I was looking at the stats for the world. It's quite staggering when you think that China produces over 75%, they were saying, of the world's Mm. garlic. Correct. Yeah, that's right. You have to bear in mind, a lot of that's also uh, what you'd call industrial garlic as well. It goes into food services industry and doesn't go into what you call the fresh market and to the consumer. It would be going into an industrial market in things like breadcrumbs and additives to other dishes. 
How hard is it for Australian garlic growers to compete against the prices of that cheaper garlic from overseas? Well, I think we've got to the stage where we don't try to compete. You know, clearly in Australia, we're paying quite a bit out in terms of obligations that an employer has to employees, you know, work cover, superannuation and things like that. We know that these things aren't paid to overseas workers in that sense. So there's some very, very significant differences in input costs. So we just focus really on, as you said before, the better flavour of Australian garlic. And this is what our association does is to try and educate our consumers or educate the consumers around what is a better flavoured garlic. You know, there's many, many different cultivars that are grown and they all have their unique flavours and unique holding capacities and such like. And some are better fresh, some are better cooked. So, you know, our role is to try and educate consumers around those many aspects. I imagine it'd be pretty hard to find that kind of range of garlic, even if you've got local garlic growers. Uh, You you certainly don't find the range of garlic in the major chains. There's no doubt about that. And for obvious reasons too, because, you know, it it takes up more space. And for many people, garlic is just garlic. Uh, Well, the reality is that uh, various, many different flavours and textures and profiles of garlic, many local growers would probably grow three, four, five different cultivars. So if you're lucky enough, you'll be able to find a local grower who'll be able to find you some uh, different flavoured garlics. Sounds like fun testing them out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it would be. I mean, wouldn't it be fantastic? Yeah, you just just got to find the time to get around to them. (laughs) John Olive, how has the industry been going as a whole with the very atrocious weather conditions that have been coming our way this year? How's that affected the harvest? Well, uh, (laughs) oh boy. Look, you know, some of the stories you hear, and I haven't verified a lot of them, but I'm hearing lots of things around secondary shooting. Garlics that are too wet to harvest, can't get out of the ground. Paddocks have been flooded and grounds inundated. So, look, I think there's a lot of difficulty within our sector. It would be just the same as most other uh, agriculture, horticulture sectors in Australia at the moment. You know, it's just been a uniquely different year. And what would you say to somebody who was contemplating trying to grow garlic commercially for the first time? Start small. (laughs) Start small and learn through your mistakes without risking too much. If you do have a bad year or bad failure or you've made a mistake or what have you, we do see and hear from time to time people who go out too quickly, too fast, and you know, they don't understand quite what's required. Oh, I'm really looking forward to going out and seeing it being braided. Is that something that generally you would do if you were selling it commercially? You have to dry it, hang it up, braid it? Well, it depends on your definitions there, Jennifer. You know, conventional garlic going into supermarkets obviously doesn't get braided. It's a commercial crop. A lot of uh, boutique growers who are selling into farmers' markets and into local community areas or, you know, farm gate sales, they often use braiding as a way of presenting their produce in the best possible light. And it's also a traditional way of storing your garlic. You're storing it with the stalks on, so all the goodness in the stalks still remains at harvest time goes back down to the bulbs it's a it's a great way of doing it and they look good too of course you know it's it's, it's a value add it is john olive garlic grower and chair of the australian garlic industry association talking there to jen nichols you can see the braided garlic online at abc rural and don't forget our abc rural facebook page where you can see the video of them uh, breeding the queen bees that is our country hour for today catch you after midday tomorrow